And so the goal of this morning is just to, to work through what are the instructions of Christ to us uh, about the Lord's Supper. Why do we participate in that? Uh, and how ought we to participate in that? And that's part of the purpose of Paul writing to the Corinthians. As Danny mentioned this morning, as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that they are a church uh, that is greatly rebuked. You have different letters in Scripture, like the letter to the Philippians, where Paul is mostly just saying, I'm just trying to encourage you in what you're already doing. I'm thankful for your pursuit of Christ, and I want to encourage you in that. The letter to the church of Corinth uh, is similar in that it's written to a church, and it's written by Paul. Uh, but as you can see in the first words of our section this morning, he's not writing to commend them to go forward in what they're doing. He's writing to rebuke them uh, because of what they're doing and that things need to change. So that can be a great encouragement to us. You notice that the book of 1 Corinthians is included in Scripture. It's not excluded. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is not a book that was taken out of the Bible because, look, this church is off the rocker. Uh, we got to get rid of this. We don't want this letter around. We don't want people to know that churches like that could exist. No, Paul writes to them in the hope of the gospel. And I'd encourage you this week, read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and see the hope of the gospel that Paul writes for them. He, he writes to them not in an assumption that there's no hope. He writes with great hope in Christ, uh, that even Corinth, the probably the messed, most messed up church we see out of all the epistles, there is great hope in Christ for them to pursue Christ. And as Danny mentioned also, uh, the truth of the word of God is enough to correct under the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. So if you look with me this morning, uh, as we work our way through verses 17 through 34, uh, we're just going to do so verse by verse through this whole section, starting first with 17 through 22, and I've titled it on the top of your handout, The Danger of Despising the Church, comma, should be there, forgive my grammar, comma, deviance from the Lord's Supper. Let me pray and then uh, we will continue. Father, we just thank you for your grace and your faithfulness. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have called us uh, to your Son. I thank you that you allow us to gather together. I thank you, Lord, that you have called us to gather to proclaim your name. I pray this morning that you would give us clarity on uh, something we participate together in every Sunday. I pray, Lord, that you would clarify for us why we do so. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do so in a manner that is glorifying and honoring to you, that you might be glorified through our lives. We thank you for your faithfulness, that you care for your people, not based on their condition, but based upon your character and your faithfulness. We pray you would continue to do so faithfully. We thank you that you will. We pray that you will give us eyes to see that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1, start, uh, 11, rather, starting at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Notice Paul starts in saying, but in the following instructions, and then pauses. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. He says, I'm giving you these instructions. These are instructions on the Lord's Supper, starting in uh, the next section, in verse 23. But he says, in these instructions, I'm not commending you. I'm not proclaiming to you that you're doing this rightly. This is not a Philippian letter. He's not saying, you guys are doing great. You just need to continue in doing the same faithful thing. It says in 1 Corinthians, as I write these instructions, you know them, but I'm not commending you in them, right? He, he says in verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I gave to you. So he has already communicated this to them. This aren't, these aren't new instructions, but he's saying, as I give these instructions again, I'm not commending you in these instructions because what you're doing is not this. Paul rebukes the church of Corinth saying, though they're gathering together and though they are eating and drinking together, what they are doing, whether they say it is or not, is not the Lord's Supper. And he gives reasons. The first is that they are divided. He says, I do not commend you uh, because you are divided. And I want to mention again, as Danny said in the beginning, uh, you notice in these instructions, he says, it would be better for you not to gather. He says, when you gather, you gather for the worse. This isn't, this isn't a help. And I think that's just a helpful instruction for us as a church to hear that said, that some churches need to hear that. Some churches need to hear the truth uh, that Paul says to the Corinthian church. It would be better if you just stopped. Because I think in our society, you can't say that to a church. You can't tell a church that it'd be better if they just stopped gathering and let their people go gather other places. That would sound so harsh, so evil. God would never say such a thing. Except, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, Paul tells the Corinthian church, it'd be better if you stopped because it's, you're for the worse when you gather. And he writes to them in hope, giving instructions that, that things can change. So for in the first place, when you come together as a church, verse 18, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe in part. If you will turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul gets at these divisions. So if you have your Bible, or if your smartphone does everything, uh, and you got a Bible there, turn back, or flip back, or text back, or click back, or whatever you do, or go to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, and I just want to read for you there the divisions that Paul is talking about. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he's already writed, written to them, not written to them, he's written to them on this topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, as you turn there, I'll start from verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely humans? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. There's no one else's Christianity to follow that is supreme. What's going on in Corinth is they've divided themselves by teachers. They say, oh, you, well, you follow Paul, but I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow this teaching. They're dividing themselves as disciples of men rather than disciples of Christ. And Paul rebukes them for this. He says, no, you're, you're not to divide yourself among men. There's not someone else's supreme authority that you're to follow. And we don't divide ourselves as teachers. We are all fellow workers building on the foundation of one thing, Christ. There is no other foundation than Christ. We work in what Christ has done and we have nothing new. Nothing to follow us for, just to follow Christ. And so the first thing that's going on in Corinth is they're dividing themselves, and they're dividing themselves by teaching. And notice, it's even good teaching. All these men listed, Apollos is faithful, Paul is faithful, Peter's faithful. But they all have a purpose, and their purpose is Christ. They're not to divide themselves about teachers. And that's common. It's common for man to be those who we want to boast in a person, right? We want to find our boast in a person. We want to find someone to follow. We want to go after that person. I'm of this guy. But Paul says, no, that is not how you are to divide yourselves. Look back with me at verse 12. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. But it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as though through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, who is Peter, or the word, the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ's is God. So he says, this, you, church, are God's temple. And anyone who is building on the foundation of God's temple, he'll receive his own judgment. You remember from James just a few weeks ago as we study it together in midweeks. 
He says, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Because you will suffer a stricter judgment. And he talks about that judgment here. He says, what they build will be judged. And some are building in things that glorify and honor Christ. And some are building in hay and straw. And in the end, it will all be burned up. And each will receive their reward. And some will be saved just by the fire. Everything being burned up and they just lay on the foundation of Christ. He's saying teachers are teaching what is Christ. And they're not, you're not to follow them in such a way that you're dividing yourselves against each other. You are to follow them in Christ. You are to follow them because they and life and death and everything on earth belongs to Christ. Let no one boast in men. How are they dividing themselves? They're dividing themselves based upon the things of earth. They're dividing themselves like high school kids, right? And this isn't true of actually the current generation. They're uniting themselves around almost nothing. Uh, but when I was a kid, uh, we weren't any better. Uh, we divided ourselves around almost nothing, right? It was about what music you listened to. It was if you wore these particular clothes, then you belonged to this group. And if you wore these particular clothes, you belonged to that group. We were not very eclectic. We were very divided, at least in, in Memphis, where I grew up. That's how we did it. We split ourselves up about music and people who had nothing to do with us. And you would walk through my high school campus, and it was just like we all just watched the lame 1980s high school movies, and we just decided that's how we're going to function. And we divided ourselves by the groups. And he says, this church is behaving in the same way. They're living like fanboys. They're dividing themselves based on people. Rather than pursuing Christ and running at Christ, they're dividing themselves based about teachers. And this is even good teachers. But they're not living for Christ. They're buying Paul's shirts. They're saying, yeah, did you get the new Paul shirt? I'm looking at having Paul. And he's saying it should not be this way. It should not be this way. Because you are God's temple. Let your boasts not be in men, but follow Christ. And in following Christ, recognize that Paul, Peter, Cephas, all together are writing and living and proclaiming and preaching and discipling for who? For Christ, not for themselves. It's important as you look at 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Acts, what is one sign of a false teacher? Someone who is seeking to pull followers to themselves. Someone who proclaims that they are the one that knows the way. They found a secret that Christ didn't know. They're revealing something that God didn't reveal yet. They're trying to lay a new foundation. They're saying, I have this new foundation that if everyone laid on this foundation, now we could all really be built up together. They're proclaiming lies. But I want you to notice something in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19. At the end of 18, he says, and I believe in part. Look at verse 19. It says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Because here's what often happens when we think about the unity of the church and, and what it is to be. When we hear Paul's instructions to the Corinthians and he says, look, what you're doing is not about the Lord because you're divided among yourselves. We go, look, can't we all just get along? Why do we have to talk about doctrine? Why do we have to talk about truth? Why do we have to fight about things? The church really should just all get together. Really, we're all just about the same thing. 
And what Paul says here, I think, is hugely significant for us to think about as a church and as Christians. In verse 19, he says they are divided, speaking of their previous discussion of division. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you. This word factions is heresies or splintering. There must be division. You must be divided. There will be division among you, and that division serves a purpose. He says there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Notice he says they are divided, but they are divided into two groups. Disciplers and despisers. They're divided into the body and the bogus, the saints and the self-serving, the faithful and the fakers. He says there must be divisions among you because what happens is in those divisions, what's made clear is who is Christ, right? So what happens when Paul writes this letter and he declares to the Corinthians, you must not follow anyone but Christ. You must follow Paul. And someone says, I don't care what Paul says. I follow Apollos. I'm going after Apollos' teaching. I don't even listen to the letters of Paul. I'm not about that. What are they doing? Are they showing themselves a true disciple of Christ? No, they're showing themselves a true disciple of Apollos. And in Apollos' words, they would be a false disciple. He says there must be division among you. There must be those who declare this false truth. Heretics are the background of displaying the beauty of Christ. Heresy or lies, false truth, I think often in our time it would be easy for us to be discouraged because there are, as Jesus said, many false teachers. How do you live when Christ says we must be unified, we must be united, but he also says there will be many false teachers, those who will try to draw disciples away. How do you put those two things together? Well, I think as a modern American church, what we're doing is we're buying the gospel of America that is plurality. It's pluralism. And we believe the way to find world peace, the way to really solve the gospel is to draw all nations together and get a little bit of advice from every nation because everybody has a piece of the puzzle. And then if we all come together, we could have the whole puzzle and then we could see how to fix the world. It's a lie from the pit of hell. What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say all men can gather together and then they will eliminate sin? All men have a small piece of the puzzle of the problems of men, and if they all come together, then we can fix the problems of earth? Or does it say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? There is not a group that has all the answers, and there are not little bits of the answers in every group. There is one who holds all the answers, Christ. The unity of the church is not built on all of us coming together and saying we each have a little piece of the puzzle of truth, the unity of the church is built on Christ. And it is the truth proclaimed in Christ that unites us. Unity in the world looks like everyone holding hands. And I'm not saying it's bad to hold hands. <laughs> it's okay. It's good to hold hands. But everyone holding hands and coming together, and now we have someone from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and they give their tongue and their tribe, and their nation's beliefs, and then we put all of that together, and what do we get? The grand solution to all things. Mankind finally reunites in an ambiguous, androgynous humanity. 
No, Christian, your unity is not in holding hands together alone. It is holding hands running toward Christ. Your unity is in Christ. And the world's declarations of false gospels lay a backdrop to say, that can't solve it. That can't solve it. That can't solve it. That is not the truth. Only Christ. Why is there false teaching among you? Because false teaching gives clarity to the truth. The false teaching of the world has always brought about the purity of the church. And as you look at church history, you see this. Many people hold to creeds and confessions, creeds and confessions that are good. We've had many people come to our church and say, why aren't you a confessional church? Why don't you hold to the Westminster Confession or the London 1689 Baptist Confession? Or why don't you hold to the Apostles' Creed or all these things? And we'd say, those are good and faithful statements. And do you know what those statements were gathered together out of? There was all kinds of heresy going on. And the church was clarifying the truth. And so they gathered together to say, let's make a clarifying statement of what the Word of God says. So they came together to clarify, to proclaim, this is the truth. And Christians, we still do this every Sunday. We gather together to declare the truth, that we might know it and hold it. But historically, the church has done that. As elders, we seek to do that in our doctrinal statement. We have an extensive doctrinal statement. When men ask me, why don't we follow the, the 1689 London Baptist Confession? Uh, what I would like to say is because it's not 1689, I'm not in London, and I'm not a Baptist. So it wouldn't make sense. Nobody would believe me. Say, so you're a 1689 London Baptist? No. I'm a 1982 Minifian. We don't have a confession. We just have cheap housing, so people moved here. So that's how it works. So we write a doctrinal statement that we can clarify and say as, as we hear things that aren't truth and go, we need to clarify this for our church. We need to make these things truth. Heresy is the backdrop of truth. And that's what Paul says here. He says, there will be factions among you. So I think it's important that we stop and see that there. What's going on among these Christians? One is that they are divided. And they're dividing themselves in one of two ways. As disciples or as despisers. Those who say, I'm following what Christ said no matter what. And those who say, I don't care what Christ said, I want to do it the way I want to do it. And Paul's writing to give them instructions that they might flee to be disciples and stop being despisers. But notice what he writes in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. You should read it like this. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? You see the exclamation point? Like, how is this even happening? Paul's shocked. He's saying, what? What is going on? He says, do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Do you, do you not have a house where you can eat and drink? If you're just gathering together to eat and drink, do you not have somewhere to already do that? He says, you do this and you come together and what happens? You each have your own meal. You go ahead and you don't wait for one another. And one goes hungry, he gets nothing, and another is trashed. He's drunk. He's indulged himself in gluttony and drunkenness. He's taken part in everything. And so Paul says, what they're doing is not the Lord's table. What they're doing is not participating in the Lord's table. It's despising the church of God. It's hating one another. 
And he, he is making the statement that to, to hate one another is to ignore the Lord's table. It's to, to be selfish and about himself, themselves rather than about God. They're humiliating those who have nothing, those who might really be coming together with the local church and eating the Lord's table together, and it might be the only meal they have for the week. They might be those in poverty. In the early church, uh, you had many who were poor, many who lived as slaves called into the church. In the early church, each week, as they gathered together, they would participate in a meal. Early church writings call these love feasts. Love feasts were common for many practices in the ancient world. Uh, food was not like it is for us, right? There, there weren't drive throughs You couldn't just run up to a drive through uh, food was not something that was just a matter of flavor and taste. They weren't Instagramming their lunch. They weren't saying, look at this. Look at how my carrots lay out so beautifully. I found this new Mediterranean place. They wouldn't say that because they were all Mediterranean. But Oh, I found this new African place from these new settlers here. You guys got to try that. No. For us, food is a, it's a, it's a little accessory. We don't think of food as actually sustaining we think of food as a choice and a preference, not something that sustains us. And in the ancient world, the majority of people thought of food as sustaining. I was explaining to my children last night as we were having chorizo and potato tacos. How did potato, my Lola says, this isn't meat, this is potatoes, why is it in tacos? And I said, because at many times on earth, people have not been able to afford meat. And meat doesn't just make a meal. And you put, and I remember my grandpa telling me stories. They didn't eat potato tacos, but, you know, we would go to school with mayonnaise sandwiches because that's all we had. We didn't have lunch meat to put in it, but we still had the bread. We'd go with butter sandwiches or all these things, right? That's not the world my kids are growing up in. It's not the world your kids are growing up in. If we put potatoes in a chorizo taco, it's because we're cheap or because we like the flavor now because it's been done so many times. But in the ancient world, it was because we need to be sustained, Right? And let me say it's also in the modern world, just not here. In the modern world, many places, people have feasts occasionally, but their primary diet is rice and beans. It's potatoes and bread. It's posha and beans. It's some kind of starch and staple. It's all the things you're trying to avoid, all of the carbs that you don't want to eat, because what do those carbs do? They sustain life. They put fat on you so you can live through a few times of not having a meal. So when the hunger pains come, which we might be confused what those even are, but when they come, your body has something to go to. And Paul's saying, there's some of you who don't have this problem. You have houses to eat in, and you're humiliating those who don't. You're saying you're having a love feast. You're saying you're having a meal that everyone can share and in love, and you're coming and you're getting trashed, and you're not even thinking about the, those that are in poverty. You're just coming to the potluck with all of your great stuff and then participating in all of your great stuff with your rich friends and forgetting those who are poor. It's for that reason Paul says, you're not even having the Lord's table. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, or maybe you just haven't been in church in a long time, or you're not here with us regularly, you might still be trying to figure out what is the Lord's table, right? But what is he actually talking about? Uh, talking about communion, uh, the Lord's table, maybe depending on what you might have called, heard it called, the Eucharist. What we're talking about is that simple taking of bread and wine as a body in remembrance of Christ. The elements are very simple, and that's what Paul gets to. The duty 
of delight and remembrance through the Lord's Supper. So first, Paul tells them they are not even participating in the Lord's table. Why? Because they have divided themselves, because they are delighting in their own wealth, their own pleasure, their own passions, their own possessions. They are being selfish, not thinking, not considering the others that are around them. What are they doing? They are eating bread and drinking wine, right? They're getting together and they're eating bread and they're drinking wine. So their assumption is we're participating in the Lord's table. Because what is the Lord's table? To eat bread and to drink wine. And maybe they're even praying before they do it, right? Maybe they go and they say a quick prayer in remembrance of Jesus. And now they eat their bread and drink their wine and get trashed. They're saying, we're doing the right things. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm eating bread and I'm drinking wine. And I'm doing so in remembrance of Christ. What's Paul's point? It's not the bread and the wine that make the Lord's Supper. It is the gospel of Christ. And to participate in the Lord's Supper, ignoring the purpose of the Lord's Supper, is not to participate in the Lord's Supper. To say that you're coming into communion and living for yourself is not living in communion. The instructions are very simple. It is simply bread and wine or a cracker and a cup. It is not the elements that are the primary emphasis here. You can see that Paul is not rebuking them because he's saying, look, you guys switched to grape juice because of the, uh, tr- uh, let me say transubstantiation, that's a whole different problem, uh, because of uh, the outlawing of alcohol in America, whatever that prohibition, right? Historically, you might think, why do we use grape juice? It's mostly because of American prohibition. We don't use wine. But he's not, he's not saying you're using the wrong elements. He's saying as you're using these elements, you're not doing them for their intended purpose. You're doing it for your own pleasure. Verse 23, Paul finally gets to the instructions. What are the instructions? He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The duty of delight in remembrance through the Lord's Supper. Number one, I'm just going to go through six points we can see here about communion. As Paul gives these instructions, he's trying to correct the Corinthians and saying, let me give the instructions again clearly of what goes on here. Number one, the duty of the Lord's Supper. Instructions delivered to you. He says, I delivered these instructions to you. What are instructions? They're what you ought to do, what you must do, right? Many of you men, you deny this, right? Or maybe you ladies do too, but the stereotype goes that it's men. We get a box from Ikea. We go, it's just gluing dowels together. How hard could it be? What do we do? We throw the instructions out. And we forever have a piece of flimsy notebook, or not notebook, bookshelf uh, that doesn't line up right, that's not quite there. Why? Because we probably skipped a couple little steps that some Swedish engineer laid out for us to follow. Because if that thing's not put together exactly right, it might as well be firewood. 
And he says, these are the instructions I've given to you. These aren't something to just throw out and say, we just need bread and wine. That's all Jesus was talking about. Whatever we want to do with the bread and wine, that's what matters. He says, no, these are destruction, instructions. Verse 24 says the same. As you see Christ's words quoted, what does it say in verse 24? It says, do this in remembrance of me. This is a command. This is a duty. It is a duty to take delight in. Notice what Christ does. Verse 24. Do this as a command and do this in delight. Verse 24 says, And when he has given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. I want you to think about this. Jesus stops to give thanks before he breaks the bread to hand it to the disciples. And if you don't understand the significance of what Jesus just said, it might not be shocking to you that he stops to thank God. He stops to thank Him before He breaks the bread. That is a symbol of what? His body, which will be broken. Jesus thanks God in joy and delight. He thanks God for who He is. He thanks God for His plan. And He breaks the bread and hands it to the disciples. And this is the same Jesus that shortly will go to the garden and He will sweat blood because the breaking of bread is a symbol of what will really happen to Him, that the full wrath of God will be poured out on Him. But Jesus, knowing that, takes delight. He takes joy. He gives thanks to God before he institutes the Lord's table. We must do it and we must do so with joy, knowing that it was the joy that was set before him, it says, that he endured the cross. Jesus doesn't come to communion and go, this is what I have to do. I've got to give them this symbol real quick. I really wish there was another way. He gives thanks and breaks the bread in delight. In remembrance, verses 24 and 25, number three, in remembrance of the Lord's Supper. Remembrance of the Lord's Supper. What are we remembering? We are remembering His death. We are remembering that Christ died. Look at verse 24. The instructions are very clear. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What is communion? It is a remembrance when we take that cracker and that cup this afternoon as we end service, what are we doing? We are remembering Christ's body was broken for us. We are remembering that his blood was spilled for us. He says twice, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. What is it remembering? Atonement for sin. It is remembering that the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, that it might not be poured out on you. It is remembering that he gave his life once and for all for the saints. It's remembering Romans 6, 10. You could write it down. Romans, uh, Hebrews 9, 28 and, and 10, 10. 1 Peter 3, 18. I'll read that one for you. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He suffered once for sins. The Hebrew says he suffered once and for all for sin. Christ's suffering was once. Communion is a remembrance and nothing more. It is to remember what Christ has accomplished. He proclaims that here. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And you might think, Jake, the Bible clearly says that. Why are you making a big deal about it? 
Why do you keep saying remembrance as though it could be anything else? It seems clear from Scripture, does it not, that it's a remembrance. We're just remembering what Christ had done. It's important because there are many men who have claimed it's more than that. There are many men who have claimed it is not just a remembrance, that it's part of your salvation, that you receive some type of salvation by participating in communion. And there might be many of you who would join us on a Sunday morning and we pass the cup and we pass the bread and you participate in communion because you just feel better after. Because it feels like this is what's going to help me out. This is what's going to do it. This is going to accomplish something in me. This is going to change things in me. But what Jesus is saying here is this is just remembering what changed things in you. This is a remembrance. There's two terms you could write down or you could just hear them now. I don't think you need to study them. If you want to be a student of the Bible, you can clearly see here it says, why do we participate in communion? In remembrance. But two terms, much harder to say than remembrance. First one is transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. It was a doctrine made by the Catholic Church and continued in the Catholic Church in many ways till this day. And transubstantiation is communicating that the substance of the cracker and the cup is transformed into the body and the blood of Christ. So that each time you participate in communion, you take that cracker. After the priest blesses it, what happens is that little cracker becomes a little piece of the body of Christ. And Christ is essentially re-crucified. And his body going in you, you consume Christ. And now Christ is cleansing you of your sin because of the cracker. It has been transformed into the body of Christ. And you are now ingesting the body of Christ that you might be purified. And when he prays over that cup, that cup is transformed into the blood of Christ. Yes, it may remain wine, but it now cleanses you. It sanctifies you. It saves you. It makes you Christ's. And so the Catholics would call communion or the Lord's table a sacrament, a holy making thing, something that transforms you into Christ. In the Protestant Reformation, things like transubstantiation were rebuked and declared as foolish. Uh, but some of the men, as they proclaimed this, they were very attached to the idea that this has to mean more. It has to mean something. And so they would come up with other ways to describe it. Martin Luther came up with a term that uh, we clarify as consubstantiation or with, con being with the substance. That's how I remember it. As I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, I don't know. A homeschooler is probably going to correct me about Latin, but I think Spanish a lot. So I'm like, con, chili con carne, it's with beans or meat. It's con carne, con frejo. I'm going to stop speaking Spanish because I'm a white kid from Minovi. Uh High school Spanish doesn't get you that far. Uh, and I didn't take it in high school. So the reality of it is it's saying it's with the elements. So this is what Martin Luther and even in our day, some will argue. Uh, they'll say things like, and I've had friends say this to me that are in other churches. It's not like communion saves you, but it almost does. And I just look at him like, I don't even almost understand what you're saying. That doesn't even make sense. But what they're arguing for is the real presence of Christ. And Martin Luther would say it's the real presence of Christ that it's, it's with and above and around. And know that the cracker or the bread is not transformed. But Christ is everywhere around it. He's getting as close as he can to it without becoming it. I understand the sweet sentiment. That Christ always cares for his people and he's always with them and that he's always surrounding them. The presence of Christ is always with his people and communion is a sweet reminder of that. But that's true. Always. Not in communion. 
There is not a special surrounding of communion in any sense other than it declares the real presence, the real accomplishment, the real salvation Christ has brought. As a church, we hold that communion is a remembrance. It is not a transformation of crackers and a cup to conform us to Christ. It is not a mystical thing that happens that we can't understand. It is a physical, simple, easy, doable by all of the church and all of the world reminder of the true body and the true blood that saves us. It's an important remembrance. Verses 23 through 26, you participate in the Lord's Supper. You might see that right now and go, Yes, you do. That, come on, Jake, that's your point. Uh, I did something throughout the verse. I capitalized you, all one word, because we lose something when we translate into English. If you have a Spanish Bible, it might say something different here because Spanish continues to use a plural verb in a way that we are, a plural noun rather, in a way that we don't. Except some of us, Joshua, if he had translated the Bible, would have the right thing here because he would read it like this. For I received from the Lord will also deliver to y'all that the Lord on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he gave thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for y'all y'all we're missing the y'all it's not you individual Californian it's y'all y'all participate in this together this is not a singular you every single you you see is a plural you do this as often as y'all drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as y'all eat this bread and drink this cup, y'all proclaim it to the Lord's death until he comes. Why does that matter? Well, I think sometimes as, as Christians, we uh, find an attachment to the Lord's Supper in a detachment from the church. And we think, I need to take the Lord's Supper because that's a thing a Christian has to do, but we detach it from the church. I don't think we do this in maliciousness. I think we do it in, because we've been poorly taught and we poorly have thought about Scripture and the significance of the communion being all of us, the Lord's table. I think some sweet believers came and visited us once during COVID, uh, and they asked, you know, we have friends that haven't been able to come to church. Could we get a couple extra cups and a couple extra crackers and take them to our friends so they can participate in communion? And I took the next 15 minutes uh, that probably didn't require that much time. They probably wish they asked someone else, but to describe why we don't just send crackers and cups home with people. Because communion is to be an act of the church. It's something we declare together. Can you eat bread and drink wine and remember Christ alone? Sure. Anytime you drink bread, uh, you're confused because you eat bread. And anytime you drink wine, uh, you can remember what Christ has done. But it's not the Lord's table. It's not what the church does in gathering together to eat and drink together, to proclaim together, to remember together. And remember, this is the exact issue going on in Corinth. What are the Corinthians saying? I can do this by myself. I don't need to wait for anyone else. I don't need anyone else to come. I remember Christ all the time. They have a very casual approach to this and a casual approach which is leading them to sin. 
It's leading them to ignore and neglect the body and to just think it's all about them and their religious experience. And so they are giving themselves into what is the common religious experience around them. What did the pagans do? They gathered together and they stuffed themselves with food and got drunk. Why? Because they felt out of control in doing so. Compelled by the spirits. No, they were enslaved to drunkenness and sexual morality, and all kinds of other things. And Paul says to the Corinthians, what you're doing is not the Lord's table. I would encourage you, Christians, you you need to wrestle with yourself. If I think I have communion with Christ, and I need to have that special communion with him, but it neglects and ignores the body of Christ, are you not doing what the Corinthians did? Are you treating Christianity as though it was something just for you, rather than for the glory of God? For his bride, the church, you all participate in communion. We all do it together. We remember, we serve one another. Unlike the Corinthian assembly was doing, we are called to do this and remember together. Why? Next, because we proclaim the Lord's death. The proclamation of the Lord's Supper. Because he died for sin, we proclaim the death of Christ because his death matters. It's not symbolic. Christ's death is not symbolic. The bread and the cup are symbolic. His death is substitutionary. His death is not symbolic. His death is not a grand display of God to say, look, I can forgive sin. His death is functional. It is actual. He paid the wrath of God in which you could not pay. He took the penalty upon himself. The bread and the cup are a symbol of something that is not symbolic. It is substitutionary. He made atonement for sin. It is not the cracker and the cup that cleanses you. It is Christ. And in taking the cracker and cup together, what are we doing? We are proclaiming together. Christ saves. Christ died. Christ paid for sin. Christ has atoned us. Christ has brought us together. It is a proclamation of the Lord's death. And it is anticipation There is anticipation in the Lord's Supper. It is anticipating His return. It is a declaration of our risen hope in Christ. We participate in the Lord's Supper because one day we will stand at His table together. One day we all in Christ will stand at His table together. It does say every tribe, there will be from every tribe and every tongue and every nation unified and gathered together in what? Christ. We participate in the Lord's table together, proclaiming that the Lord will come and his table will no longer be symbolic in what he has done, but it will be proclaimed not his death, but his reign and resurrection over all the earth. And so we do so in proclamation and anticipation. It is a duty. It is a duty with delight. It is a duty in remembrance of what he's done. It is a duty that you all do together. It is a proclamation of Christ's death as our only hope. And it is anticipation that he will one day return. Discerning the body as we participate in the Lord's Supper. So what does Paul do as he writes to the Corinthians? Remember, he rebukes them and then he gives them the clear instructions of what is communion for. What are you to do? And then he corrects them. Discerning the body as we participate in the Lord's Supper. Verse 27. 
He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so doing and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verses 27 through 29, the worthy manner. What is the worthy manner in which participating in communion? As you take the cracker in the cup, what is the way in which you should take it? Should you take it assuming that this is becoming the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and now it's going to cleanse me and fix me? Should you take it in that it's not quite that, but it's as close as it can be to that, and if we just take this act, we feel and will be sanctified? He says, no. As you take it, what should you do? You should examine yourself. Taking communion is a part of examining yourself. He says, let each one examine himself. This is singular nouns. He's saying each, each one needs to do them himself. As we all do it together, we need to self-examine. Is there sin? Is there sin in my life that I'm ignoring and neglecting the gospel? For the Corinthians, this is going to mean repenting of their practices, of coming to the potluck to get drunk and to gorge themselves and ignore their brothers. He says, you need to examine yourself. This is taking time for repentance and faith and reconciliation. Is there sin in your life? Is there sin against your brother? Why have this kind of remembrance all the time? Why do we participate in the Lord's table every week? If it's just a symbol, Jake, why don't we just do it like once a month or twice a year to just kind of remember the symbol then? Because it's a symbol that we are called to examine ourselves through. And Christian, your heart is deceitful. We do it on a weekly basis. That you would sit and examine yourself. And I know many of you, you examine yourself throughout the week. You're thinking about Christ and what he's done. You're reading your Bible to do that. You're doing those things together. But this is a time after the teaching of the word, we come together, we sit and we examine ourselves to say, in light of the truth of the gospel, which I heard this morning, where am I at? Am I resting my hope there? Am I putting my hope in that? We examine ourselves. And then he says, discerning the body. There's no clarification in the grammar here that I can see. Is this speaking of the body of Christ, him, his body that was broken for us? Or is this speaking of the body of Christ, you, his body on earth? And you might think that matters, right? We need to know which body are we discerning. Christ's body broken or Christ's body the church. But Christian, you can't examine one without the other. If you're concerned with the body of the church and keeping unity in the church, but you're ignoring the body of Christ broken in the payment of sin, you will find no unity. And if you're concerned about the body of Christ that you don't want to sin against God and you don't want your actions and your attitude and your choices to be defiling and disgraceful before God, but you're ignoring his body, the church, you can't do it. I think the beauty of the ambiguity of this language and that we don't know if he's referencing thinking of the body of Christ, the body crucified, or the body of Christ, Christ's body united because of his crucifixion, his death and resurrection, because you cannot have one without the other. What does it say throughout Scripture? How will they know that you are his? Because you love one another. Because the body broken unites the body of the people. You cannot take communion and not consider, one, Christ's body, crucified, that forgives for sin, and also His body. It's why each Sunday we remind you 
and Danny pointed to it this morning even, are there those in the body you need to reconcile with? Is there division in the body? Have, has there been sin that you've committed that needs to be communicated? Has there been sin committed against you that you can't overlook? And it keeps coming to your mind and heart and you need to go, Matthew 18 way, go alone to your brother and address the offense. You need to consider the body because the body of Christ died to pay for the sins of the body of Christ on earth, His people, that they would be united. So what are you doing to take communion rightly? It is not about how much cracker and how much wine you have. It's not about the elements that are there. It's about the remembrance of Christ, examining yourself, considering the body of Christ, that you might pursue to do that rightly. Verse 30 through 32 could be shocking. The warning, the weak, the ill, or even the dead. The weak, the ill, or even the dead. Look at verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The warning. Examine ourselves, or you will be disciplined, never condemned. Examine yourself, or you will be disciplined, never condemned. I want to point you to a few passages. The Bible says this throughout. I hope as, as you read your Bible, you see this clearly. You're always called to examine yourself. You're always called to be thoughtful of what Christ has done. Christians are not just to know some things and live however they want. They're to know the truth of Christ and apply it to their life. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, we looked at considering how you learned Christ, not living in the futile mindset of the Gentiles, but transformed in Christ. You could look there, Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. 1 Peter 1, 13, that we looked at this summer, gird up the loins of your mind and set your hope fully upon the grace of Christ that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. You're called to pull your thoughts, your life in to trust him. In Colossians that we looked at last fall, that you're to pray for one another, to have spiritual wisdom and knowledge and understanding, that you might think about the things of God in such a way that it affects your life. In Hebrews 12, 3 through 4, he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so you might not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, and that you have not resisted to the point of bloodshed. He says, You must consider what Christ has done. Why? For the purpose of pursuit of holiness, that you might not be overwhelmed in sin. And so what does Paul say here is going on in Corinth? He's saying some people are being so inconsiderate of this, that God is disciplining them. He's disciplining them in such a way as God always does. If you look at Hebrews 12, right after this part we read in 3 through 4, it states that he disciplines his people in love. As a good father, he always disciplines his children. And when they are running towards sin, what does he do? He puts obstacles and hindrances and pain in their life to turn them back to Christ. Even to the point of death here. He says some of them have died as a result of this. What does that mean? It means Christ took them out of this world. They were disciplined to a point where he took them from earth to him. We think that's extreme. That is extreme love. Extreme love for him to stop them from sin and to bring, him, bring them to himself, to save them, as he's already mentioned, even by fire. In verse 29, it says, if you drink and do this without this, 
you bring judgment on yourself. Look at 29. It says, for the, anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body brings discernment on himself. Whose discernment? God's. God is judging. How is he judging? Verse 32, his judgment disciplines us. It is punitive, or rather not punitive. It is perfecting. Punitive means giving a punishment because the action deserved the punishment. Okay? I know, Christian, you're going to confuse this truth. You've got, you've got to look at 1 Corinthians here to notice what he says in verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What is the clarification that's happening here? What is the condemnation that will come on the world? The wrath of God. The wrath of God will be put on the world. The wrath of God is deserved by mankind because of their sin. The world lives in sin and rebellion against God, and therefore the wrath of God will condemn the world. But he says, Christian, even if you are sick, you are ill, even if you are dying or dead, if you are Christ's, that is not his wrath. That is his love. It is the discipline of the Lord. He does not pour out wrath on his people. He does not condemn them. What does he do? He loves them so much, he disciplines them. He perfects us. He works in them. This is not his wrath against us. His wrath is removed. Why? Because his wrath has been poured out on Christ. So what does he do? He loves and disciplines. He does not carry out wrath against his people. He cares for his people. This truth needs to be in our minds. We need to wrap ourselves around it because it will stir within you the way of repentance. Verse 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. It will not be discerned that you're being selfish. It will be for celebration. What does he call the Corinthians to do? What is it that the Corinthians are sending in? They're saying they're participating in the Lord's table and they're being selfish. They're ignoring one another. They're getting drunk. They're slandering the name of Christ. And what does he call them to do? Repent of those very things. He says, look, if this is what you're doing, if you're hungry, eat at home. Don't come to church for a meal. Come to church for communion. Come to serve others. Come to proclaim Christ together. Don't come to eat and to drink. Come to serve and to glorify Him. He says, when you come together, do this. And if anyone's hungry, then take care of that issue before you come. And when you come together to eat, what are you to do? To wait for one another. Like Faith Bible, you guys are serious about this, right? Like a lot of you guys don't get here until like 9.04 because you want to see, are they going to wait for me? I know church starts at 9. What kind of Christians are these? Are they waiting? That's not why you're late. You're late because you're Californian. But he's saying you ought to think of one another. Now I want to encourage you as we participate, Danny's going to lead us in communion this morning. And as we participate together in communion, I want you to consider I want you to examine yourself, examine your relationships and say, is there sin in me that needs to be repented of, that needs to be confessed? 
as we do every Sunday, we're going to take time to consider and examine ourselves that we might think about His body broken for us, His blood poured out for us. And are we truly living in a way that is pursuing the gospel of Christ?